Hello, and welcome to this edition of Life's Tough. You can be tougher. Our first podcast was nearly two months ago, and since we started, we've had an impressive selection of intriguing guests and plenty of free-flowing conversation. I'm Dustin Planel, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show today with today's featured in-studio guest, Krish Omara Vignaraja, President and CEO, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. Chris is joining us in our studio today, here in Baltimore, Maryland, at the Alston Carlisle Studio. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically-focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. Or check out their website, poiibogaine.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. Now let's introduce Krish. Krish is President and CEO, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, also known as LIRS. Since it was established in 1939 at the onset of World War II, the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service has helped more than 500,000 migrants and refugees to rebuild their lives in the United States. Krish assumed her leadership role at LIRS earlier this year in February. She is the second refugee and the first non-Lutheran in LIRS history to lead the Baltimore-based relief organization, which advocates for migrants and refugees. They've also stepped up their efforts to provide humanitarian assistance along the southern border. Krish was nine months old when her parents arrived in the United States after fleeing a civil war in Sri Lanka. Both of her parents eventually became teachers in Baltimore City schools. More recently, Krish was a candidate in the 2018 Democratic primary race for Maryland governor. She has also worked in the Obama White House as a policy director to Michelle Obama. And she previously worked in the State Department as a senior advisor during the tenures of Secretaries of State Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. Krish has an undergraduate degree in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology from Yale College. She also has earned a master's in political science at Yale. As a Marshall Scholar at Oxford University, she then earned a master's in international business. She then returned to Yale and graduated from Yale Law School. Now let's welcome her on their show. Hey, Krish, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. That's great. Well, we're looking forward to a conversation. And I can tell you, that's quite the bio, quite the resume. How does one get a resume like that? Like, how do I build something like that? Uh, a willingness to take on a lot of student loans. Ah, lots of debt, <laughs> huh? That, that's the key. 
Um, maybe I'm not the most financially sound of mind, but uh, honestly, for me, yeah, because you're um, man, your your parents were were immigrants. Yeah, they probably didn't come with them. What they didn't bring a million dollars. I know, two hundred dollars. That's it, two hundred dollars. Yeah, so they came over, um, no jobs, just two very young kids in their arms, and the America that welcomed us was that land of opportunity. Uh, and for me, it was. Um, just a matter of realizing that the opportunities, the very basic opportunities that I had been given that pe people literally die for. We take for granted. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that when we watch the media and we hear a lot of this demonizing of these migrants, those seeking a refuge. And I lived in a foster care in California, uh, more like an orphanage. It was called Casa de Ampara, House of Protection. Why is it when we see a House of Protection, well, the group that gets to live there, well, they do take it for granted. I was a little boy, I knew no different. This was 1987 and 1988. Yet here we are in 2019. It's been a long time since I lived in one. And yet still, there is a mentality in the United States that, well, we get to decide. We get to allow what people like us, people like me, that take it for granted. When we look at those in the world that fight to get here, the people like your parents, these are the most resilient ones, aren't they? The ones yeah. that don't quit, the ones that don't give up and don't complain. $200 to them, we've got a million dollars. Wow. So why, why is it that we've become so desensitized that we no longer have empathy? You've seen a lot in your career. You've been around people from the best, you've seen the best and the worst of people. How do you find empathy? I mean, I think part of it is understanding that even someone like me, um, could be described as a refugee. And so sometimes when I speak across the country, um, you know, I grew up here essentially. Um, so it's not obvious that I have an accent or, you know, I grew up in Baltimore. And I think that for me, part of the story is uh, to make people understand that I am no different um, than the refugees who are demonized. They're on demonized. TV. They have, look, yeah. I was one of them that used to demonize them. Get back over the fence. What's the matter with you? Don't break into my country. And so I, I see the journey and there is a way to do it right and yeah. there's a wrong way to do it. But why is it that the wrong way only gets the press? The yeah. right way, LRS, it doesn't get to be seen or heard. Yeah, I mean, and this is where, you know, uh, taking over the helm a few months ago, part of my point has been, look, we need to be on the offensive, not just in a defensive posture. We have to explain how immigration is what helped build this country. Um, that it's not a uh, burden on our existence, but in part our strength. Yeah, and by um, the way, most young people don't even realize, they don't know, most millennials haven't really sat and thought about the fact of, who do you think built this country? Yeah. You, you think Native Americans, they built the country, because you can look at the history books, that's not always the case. There are certain communities that have been built by, but it was people like your parents and people like mine. And I look at Ancestry.com, I, I did this fairly recently for my book, and that was fascinating. I was lied to for so many years, or not intentionally. A lot of times in families, there's a history that may not always be the truth. It can be, it can be one percentage point off, or it can be, that's not anywhere near. And in my story, or what I was told, was that I was an American Indian, or part of my family's history. Getting my book report back from Ancestry.com, I was waiting for it, I was really excited, it was like the night before Christmas. Because as an adult, what else can make you excited, right? Or do you want to buy something? You can go buy it, or there's something on TV, you can watch it. But this was getting to the bottom, bedrock. Imagine I get this piece back in my email, electronic, and it tells me, you're kidding me. I'm not an American Indian. No. 
that my ancestors had migrated from Scotland, from Ireland, from Germany, and then from the Nordic countries. And just like that, it became new passion to go, wow, they came further than I ever imagined. What it took to get here, and I have believed this for years, the most resilient of our species are people like your mom, the females, women, the most resilient that did not give up because that's one hell of a journey to come from Sri Lanka. Your mom must be an incredibly tough woman. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for me, I didn't have any alternative reality in terms of failure being an option. Um, my mom, you know, she had me when she was 42. She 42 went back to old. school and got her PhD when she was 62. That's not supposed to happen. No. And, you know, I'll tell you, I've got a daughter who's a year and 10 months. Um, Adorable, by the way. Joy of my life. Uh, and, you know, it's an effort for me to pack her up and take her to the grocery store. The idea of packing up with a three-year-old and a nine-month-old baby, right? Man, Going halfway the across the world, takes. right? And, and this is where, you know, there is a self-selection. Um, the people who are willing to be pioneers, the courage, the boldness, um, but also, frankly, some part of it is the desperation. And so when people say, well, you know, why don't they just find a job in their own country? Um, I think that is, to your point about empathy, people have no idea what people are fleeing from. When I was in Phoenix about a month ago, and um, I was told that the, some of the local ICE agents have told some of the churches that we're the ones who are enabling the immigrants because we are offering a cot on a floor or a bowl of soup. And I said, look, if, if you think that a person is undertaking a more than a thousand mile perilous journey for a bowl of soup, you have no idea what they're doing. We complain. We like. sit in traffic for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Hey, can you imagine? And, and I can't, but that your mother. She had to not only worry about herself, but she put herself last. My babies will make it. This is a woman that their quitting was not an option, that no matter how scary it was on the other side, why is this world gotten, why have we gotten to a place where we, we have lack, we lack empathy for, the, for women? You know, many times we have a lot of males on this guest, on, on our show. We have a lot of guys come on. And I think it's more fascinating from the female perspective to say, how'd they do it? because the odds were stacked against them. Yeah. Your mother was not supposed to succeed. She was not supposed to get her PhD. Indoctrination tells me it wasn't supposed to be. I set these rules, I set these, these limitations. How did your mother know how to break them down? It's a great question. Um, and I think that from an early age, she decided to pave her own path. And so, you know, when she was, of an age where her mother was saying, you've got to get married, you've got to settle down, you're past your peak. Past your peak. Isn't that said, funny you know? to actually say that to people? You're <laughs> guys say that to each other. Hey, hey, John, our producer, you're past your peak, John. Time well, to throw apparently it out. doesn't work in terms of having that empathy. As I was getting older and older, and I hadn't, you know, met my husband, Colin. Yeah, good and dude, by the way. That's my buddy right there, future guest. Worth waiting yeah, for. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, He's tall too. I mean, six four. Yeah, wow. which is why when they see, how, how, our it must be hard to hold hands sometimes. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife's six feet tall, and we're the same height. And I still like I have to like reach down. It's like this weird. Yeah, crumbled well, up. I'll tell you, I have not made friends with tall women who are just like, "Come on now, you can't, <laughs> you can't take the taller guy." Yeah, I, she goes out same thing. So I understand. Yeah. It's just switch for me. <laughs> Uh, but, but, you know, when I, when I ran for office, for example, I said to my husband, you know, I was approached about running when I was eight and a half months pregnant. And 
I said to him, I was like, how in the world are we going to think about running when I when, when we have a baby? And he said, if you had ever held your mother back for anything that she wanted to do and she knew was her calling, you would hate yourself for it, right? And that's something. And I said, yeah, that's a great point. And of course, I had some, you know, I had a supporter who I called her back because she said, you know, follow up with me after the holidays. My team had sent her out. And that's intimidating, by the way. I don't care how tough one thinks they are. When you go to a landscape that you haven't been in yet, this is brand new. This is a new moment yeah, for you. Running for office, yeah. Running for office is that you, and I know you don't have skeletons, but there's still a fear of, well, what are they going to say? Because yeah. You've been around people that all they do is get slammed. Yeah. You, know, you never hear the good that Hillary Clinton does. You never hear the good that Michelle Obama or, or even Donald Trump does. We, the media is so prone to only tell the bad. Yeah. And the, you and knew what was coming. Well, and Why did also, you want that? Well, it's what I mean, I think the greatest concern for me is that it's not something you just subject yourself to, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a tough cookie. I figured I whatever they threw at That's why you're here. Life's tough. You're tougher. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, that I could handle. But it's the idea that you do have to subject your family. Um, and, you know, this is where you have to have very honest conversations about is it is it worth it? And I think that part of why we have some of the politicians we have is that there is a self-selection. And some of the great candidates, great leaders don't want us set step into the arena because of it. It's too ugly. Um, but for me, you know, I was out in Western Maryland and they had a poster board of the eight um, men running. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, you Male know, dominated, huh? Yeah. And I just Good thought that in the great state of Harriet Tubman and Barbara Mikulski, surely we can do better than that. And so running against the eight men for the bulk of the campaign was fascinating. It must be because you're also running against the mob yeah. at that point. The car, you have the <laughs> well, cartel the against you. the uh, establishment yeah. was, was definitely not behind my candidacy. But, you know, what our campaign showed was that if you spoke your own truth, if you just expressed your authentic voice, that that resonates. And though we were outmatched in terms of fundraising by most of the guys in the field, um, came in third. And, you know, though that was not exactly what I'd hoped for, yeah. um, it was something that I was proud of because I felt like my campaign spoke to some of the issues like education um, that I deeply cared about, um, immigration, yeah. right? Where I just think that there are people who are not representing um, the truth because you've got politicians who are pandering. Yeah, they're out for, for other things other than to, to make change. You know, we say a lot on the show that that we don't connect with people in life on our strengths. We connect with people on our weaknesses. And I see that there's such similarity between your mother's approach and your approach, and that is education, 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 which is the weakness of we didn't have the name. We didn't have a brand when we came here. There wasn't a job that was going to say, hey, you got it. We're going to give you a six-figure salary uh, immediately. This was, you had to earn it. And we live in a world where it's entitlement. Michael Loeb said this last week. It's an entitlement stage or an entitlement age. So how do you find a way to find a balance? You know, with teaching this work ethic or educating, guiding on the ethics side, and then also there's a different mentality from some of the migrants that are coming into the country. And I'm sure you, you've you seen from one end to the other, and you can understand that there are people that get frustrated seeing that aspect mm -hmm. or seeing that lens of it. Yeah. Talk, th talk through that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable to see the go-getter nature um, of the individuals we support, um, whether they're asylum seekers or refugees. I also think that it is, to your point about a common theme, very consistent with the people I interacted with 
um, you know, at, at some of the Ivy League institutions at the White House. And I think regardless of the adversity that you face, face mm-hmm. if you are willing to believe in yourself, if you're willing to take on those challenges, if you're willing to find your own truth in terms of who you are and what you believe is your calling, then ultimately none of that stuff can stand in your way. And wow. I think that part of what we have troubles with sometimes is we get in our own way. I'll tell you when I was, you know, thinking about running for office, um, and when I was talked, you know, when I was approached, it was actually doing SoulCycle with Michelle Obama, where the instructor said at the end of the class, and I think she had no idea the impact that she was having on me. Um, uh, she said, "You're enough. You've got this." And what a compliment! Well, and it, and it just it stuck with me. But you have great energy, by the way. You really do. You're always, <laughs> you always have a that. you always have a smile. Well, life's too short, right? right. You life, know life's that tough. You can anyone. be tougher. Exactly. Oh, it is. What is it? YOLO. You only live once. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to bring that back. No, and I, I just, I, I do think that particularly for women, we are sometimes our worst enemy. And I say that in, in part, um, you know, Michelle Obama would say this sometimes. Um, there is a cattiness sometimes of women trying to get in um, one another's way. And I think that is changing because I think there is a solidarity and strength that we're seeing because we are looking at the disparity, um, the gender equality, and we're saying, wait a second, in 2019, come on. On the heels of the year of the woman, we are still so far from where we need sure. to be. Sure, I mean, be. we had uh, we had Stacey Stewart, CEO for March of Dimes. We were talking about diversity, yeah, and she was the first, yeah. And yeah. when I look at in the world of nonprofits, and you know this as well, that it is not the majority yeah. being on the female side; it's men running nonprofits. Why do you think there isn't more diversity than this? Yeah. What is holding this back? Because there's no better cause than a nonprofit. Why is it being held back from? from moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that there is a perception um, that women are more collaborative, um, that they're more collegial, and as a result, that they are not executives. I mean, you see that in terms of the 5%, I guess we're now at actually a little over 6% of women um, CEOs in the Fortune 500. Um, Is that all that is? That's all there is. Shocking, yeah. And it's not gonna change anytime soon because you only still have, I think it's depending on what statistic you're looking at, a quarter or a third of women in in senior management. And I think part of it is that we need to make sure that describing women as great um, members of teams doesn't come at the cost of viewing women as decisive decision makers. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's where, you know, I also think that, you know, there's the other piece of it, which is just trying to figure out how you do juggle it all. Um, you know, how is that balanced? Cause there is a higher expectation and you know, this on women than there are men yeah. in many ways. I mean, yeah. men are allowed to lose their hair. We're allowed to, we're allowed to gain weight it, that there is this mentality that men seem to get a pass that we can, we can show up late, we can take off more, but yet we don't allow, we don't allow a, a lady in the workplace or not in every company, but m- there are many that don't of the taking time off to be with the kids. Yeah. How do you, with the position you're in, which by the way, you're doing an amazing job in the organization, how do you find that balance, work, family, and more importantly, you have, you have a lot of accountability on you. Yeah, I and mean- I writing on you, how do you handle it? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that I really do think that we need to own um, our strengths and weaknesses. And I think that sometimes we try to excuse motherhood, um, excuse the fact that, uh, you know, there's other, whether you call them extracurricular activities or you call them that work-life balance, that we need to 
prioritize that. We need yeah. to understand that there's a value in that. And some of the most successful CEOs will say that to prevent the burnout, to support and promote that morale, it is embracing um, that work-life balance. And so I very much as CEO of LIRS feel it's critically important that I signal that, that I sh demonstrate it in my own life. But the other piece of it is making sure that you find a partner if there is one in your life. And so, you know, when I think about our family dynamic, Colin, my wonderful husband, who's the president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation, we are true partners in everything we do. Yeah, and he was there is, the night and supported you yeah. when, when you made the announcer. When so, the you know, it's, it's a juggling act because yeah. it is very much about trying to figure out when his board meetings are and deconflicting them with my board meetings and figuring out what night he's That's got. That's got to be a lot of fun. Yeah, who has the better stories <laughs> the end of the night? I'm going to tell, well, tell you what I heard. Well, and it's also a fun dinner conversation when we come back at the end of the night and we say, okay, who had a tougher day, immigration or um, environment and conservation, which is more under attack. Yeah, look, day. every day people <laughs> get excited. Yeah, I looked, so we live in northern Baltimore County. And uh, when we moved in a number of years back, there was this really beautiful stretch of woods and you could see the deer and it was beautiful on the way. And then one day a developer came in, knocked down the entire forest. And then over the next two, three years, a new development, 75, 80 new townhomes went up. Well, all of a sudden the beauty was gone. Yeah. And that must be something that must be hard for your husband is that he gets to see the statistics. He gets to hear what's happening and he gets to see that the li the wildlife, how they're being put to, to what? Being extinct. Yeah. Because when we look at that, it can absolutely happen. It's happened around the world. Right. I mean, and you know, this is where it's no longer a what's going to happen in 2015. It is literally We have history to prove it. Today. Absolutely. Right. We know for a fact that there will be less and less raccoons. There'll be <laughs> less and less... Dear, there, there will be yeah. as we evolve. So back to LIRS, uh, building a partner network. You were new to the organization. You were also not a Lutheran. What are the challenges one faces when somebody comes in while they have strengths in what they know, being welcomed into something that may be a little bit different? How have you balanced that? Yeah, I mean, LRS is... Um an 80-year-old organization. We're celebrating our 80th birthday this year. I'm told that I hide our age well. Yeah, I'm telling you, you don't look a day <laughs> above, what, 35, 38, somewhere in there? Um, and, you know, so part of it is that uh, I, I am the beneficiary of a great partner network. We have about 100 agencies that are in 39 states across the country. Um, in terms of the partnerships that I've been focused on, um, one piece of it is the Lutheran community. Um, and for me, it's really important to start the conversation with what LIRS has meant personally to me. Um, sometimes I talk about how Matthew 25 in terms of welcoming the stranger is something I very much felt because it was the superintendent of my dad's Baltimore City Public Schools who found us the basement apartment and we moved into it. It was his yeah. vice principal who literally helped us move in and start a bank account. It was our neighbors story. who would babysit us and became essentially not just neighbors, but extended family. And, you know, my old boss used to say it takes a village. It, it takes a village um, to create that glue of our community that is actually going to be able to keep us together even in such divided times. And then the other piece of what we're trying to do is realize that there are partners in terms of corporations, foundations, so many different organizations that come at the issue of immigration from their own 
personal perspective, right? So companies come to us, and when I talk to them, I say, this is not charity. This is part of your workforce development. Yep. Right? This is part of your business model. It affects your bottom line. I would have never have known what they have to go through. You know, I complain about my trip to Bethesda, Maryland, or I have to jump on an airplane. And when we look where LIRS was 80 years ago and the journey you're now on, how do you find 2019 and 2020 and 2021 in an organization that's 80 years old? Do you, do you build on what's there? Is it where it needs to be? And how do you get it to where it has to be? Because, you know, it is not about, well, it is great to have people working there and it's great to support the community. It is for a purpose and it is for a reason, something that is greater than me and that is greater than you. It represents what your parents fought for. Yeah. I mean, and this is where our name is Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, but the values that we espouse are as Lutheran as they are American. And I think that for me, um, as the new CEO, it's about building on the legacy of helping different groups of people literally since World War II, you know, whether yeah. it was the Lutherans who were displaced from Europe, uh, Cuban refugees, Vietnamese refugees from Bosnia, Kosovo. These have all been the waves of immigration that have ultimately shaped uh, America into what it is today. And so part of my job is to make sure we don't forget that legacy. Well, you're a torchbearer. Hey, yeah. You're now holding, you're, you're holding the torch. That's our icon. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, part of what I do sometimes is, um, quote, uh, a phenomenal quote from Ronald Reagan in his last speech as president. And if you hear the language, the empathy, the celebration of immigration as part of the diversity and backbone of our nation, Literally, when I present the quote without giving the name of the president, people will say, oh, that must have been Barack Obama. Of course. And yeah. I say, nope, that was Ronald Reagan. And I just think that we have to get back to remembering that immigration had always been a bipartisan issue because it was truly an American um, story. You know, my, my story is no exception. No. And we all look at our own story. And for some of us, we think it's the, the basis for a blockbuster movie. Seeing what these migrants and these refugees go through, their story is the basis for a movie. And so you talked about community. LIRS is not one location. Tell us about the partnerships. Tell us about yeah. the organization. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, we're in um, nearly all states, uh, 39 states. Um, and our presence, I think, is very important because I want to stress that this is not an issue that just uniquely falls on some of the southern states. Obviously, they're in the news every day, and they are dealing with um, some numbers that are not historic if you think about you know, the entire trajectory of, of immigration flows, um, but they are significant, um, and that is why we are there to work with the communities. But this is where I think the other part of what I want to stress is, though so many of the images that are seared in our mind are ones of, um, you know, they're tortures, right? They're a child crying, trying to reach up to her mother as yeah. we were, you know, talking about family separations and children ripped from their it's parents. trauma. Yeah, or, or children put in cages on our Shouldn't soil. Shouldn't happen. Um, and so I was told that's FUD. Is that not the case? I mean, is that these were lies that certain people made up that this didn't happen? You're telling me this actually happens in the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, and we have the pictures to prove it. I mean, whether you define a cage as 
um, you know, the, the steel kind of crate um, on a concrete floor that is very much like what you would put a, a dog in um, as a cage. Um, I suppose that's the only way you could disagree with whether these conditions were a cage or not. But this is where we have to own um, what we've done, um, even on the family separation issue. Part of our job is to say, though the policy has ended, the practice has not. We have had a child of nine months old separated from a parent on Christmas Eve, oh, man. Uh, a five-year-old with Down syndrome um, separated from his mother. The mother understandably exhibited trauma, and that trauma was used to justify the separation. These are the kinds of barbarous acts that we are still dealing with, and part of our responsibility is to bring light, um, because I do think that giving voice to the voiceless is so important to our our, our humanity. Lift up the downtrodden. Yeah. But right. I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, we um, also try to stress that there is such beauty um, and inspiration in some of the stories that I have had the honor of, of coming across and working on in the sense that, you know, when I'm along the southern border, some of the poorest communities have found a way to open up their hearts and their homes to migrants. And so part of what I stress uh, with our staff, particularly our communications team, is let's not just shed light on the monstrosities. Let's highlight the inspirational stories. Um, our, the bishop of our uh, board um, said in a prayer at the beginning of a call once from darkness light. Yeah. And I do think that when you see the kindness of volunteers who literally will donate their time and sign up for overnight shift after overnight shift after overnight shift after overnight mm -hmm. shift. That is America. That's amazing. Too. And can you also be a part of uh, like a welcoming committee? Yeah. Um, so what is so exciting is that we have congregations, individuals um, from communities who have said, wherever they are, what can I do? And what is so important about our work is to break into bite-sized nuggets and provide a menu of options for what people can do. So they can adopt a refugee family in their community. They can participate in our Hope for the Holidays program where they sign cards. You know, we, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a Mother's Day campaign where for mothers in detention, we just wanted to send a note that there are people who are praying for them, who are, you know, thinking good thoughts. That gives them hope. Yeah. Um, last uh, winter, we had uh, about, we donated about 1,500 gifts to kids who were in facilities. Um, you know, obviously, it always helps the financial donations because much of our work, even on family separations this past summer, we were one of two agencies asked by the government to come in and help clean up the mess. But, of course, there was no funding that came along with it. Yeah. We're going to find a way because these are the things that we must do. Because if we don't do them, no one else will. Yeah. But it obviously always helps to have the financial support from any 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 person who can donate a dollar, or a hundred dollars, or a thousand dollars. Every dollar makes a difference. Every every dollar matters. Uh, your past experience working in the White House and working around some of the world's smartest, probably also some of the world's craziest people, or most dynamic people. Uh, that this is an issue that many leaders have created for a long period of time. How do we get out of this? Is there a right way? Like if if I made you president, this might be me, Aaron, that's something that's the future. I'm a Nostradamus because I would vote for you. I, <laughs> I think you're awesome. Uh, if you became president, what would we do different regarding immigration? Is there really a fix? Yeah. I mean, I do think that on immigration and a range of issues, there is a moderate majority out there that unfortunately gets crowded out by both extremes, right? On the right and on the left. 
And part of what I hope to do is to find ways in which we can build bridges around at least some of the core issues that people, whether you're conservative, liberal, or anywhere in between, care about. So for me, that's talking about religious persecution. That's talking about SIVs. So these are the special immigrant um, visas that go to interpreters who are risking their lives and their families' lives as they work alongside our army and you know wow. other military. Um, and... I just think that if we could start figuring out how to begin the conversations, first and foremost, around the values, and then operationalize those in terms of how do we execute policy, we would be in a far better place. Well done. Uh, so two more questions for you. I believe that you are now a fiduciary of the journey, the stories that you get to hear. What do you do with those stories at the end of the day? And how do you process? I mean, you get to see hardships. You get to also see success. Yeah. That is a lot. We talked to somebody a couple weeks back, Dr. Douglas Craig. He is a psychologist, a forensic psychologist for first responders. And there's a certain type of trauma for the first responders, the first on the scene. You are now the fiduciary. You now have a responsibility. Taking this in, this is quite a big change from your prior roles. It must have been something that's been hitting you more personally, on a personal level. Yeah, I mean, I do think that for me, if we as Americans turn our backs on these immigrants, I feel like it's turning uh, our backs on, on me and my family. And I think that part of what I have tried to do is actually apply some of the lessons that I learned um, in the White House. Uh, I think Michelle Obama was probably one of the best communicators of our generation. That's phenomenal. And her point was, you've got to meet people where they are. And so what I stress to our team is, yes, it's great to put out something on our website, but if we can insert ourselves into the conversation, we can make sure that we get outside of the echo chamber, right? We don't need to just talk to people who have already signed up for our news mailings. We need to talk to the people who are demonizing mm -hmm. um, you know, these immigrants. And so part of my message is that we don't admit these immigrants and refugees because they are Americans. We admit them because we are Americans. We, we are Americans and we are refugees. Yeah. We came here for a reason, made many of us to our ancestors to leave someplace for a reason. There was a reason. And I think one of the things that when someone comes here, there is an interrogation. Why'd you come? Well, imagine that. Imagine your ancestors were asked the same question. Why are we doing it the same way? No. Why do you think they came here? Yeah. What was their purpose? What was their reason? Because they wanted more for themselves. And it started with your mother saying, I agree. I want more for my family. Who's the toughest person you know? Who is that one person? We always end a segment with life's tough, but blah, 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 or dot, dot, dot is tougher. In Chris's world, it could be a couple people. The last guest had like 18 people, not getting five. <laughs> yeah, it was Don Bard, yeah, you still. So who would be the toughest person or persons that you've that you've known that have been your foundation or that have got you to to that place of enlightenment? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think it, it would be both of, both of my parents. Um, and maybe that's an easy answer because when you're family, you probably have a unique understanding of the challenges that my parents faced. But my parents are gritty for different reasons. My mother, as I touched on, was a woman in some ways before her time, uh, growing up in, frankly, a culture that was very misogynist. And she refused to take 
uh, no for an answer. Yeah. Um, and I give her full credit for not just creating a path for me to survive, but frankly, to thrive. Uh, but I also think for my father, you know, he came from a very different background than my mother. Um, he was dirt poor. His, you know, father was a farmer um, who, you know, passed away when my dad was seven. Hmm. Um, they literally had nothing. He would, you know, when he'd go to school. What a story your you father know, these, these sort of what stories that you him. hear from your parents yeah. of, oh, well, you know, when I was... 12 years old, I walked 100 miles without shoes, speaking about <laughs> shoes. Yeah. Um, but literally, that was his life. Like, he would literally use a stick and, and write in sand because they didn't have paper and pen. And never once did he ever think that he had nothing. Never once did he ever contemplate giving up or being the victim. Right. He yeah. found a way and he, he wasn't a volunteer it. victim. No, that I mean, that's what yeah. people are. You're a volunteer victim or you're not. Yeah. He wasn't going to allow that to hold him back. Right. Well, and we always look to add new new uh, hosts or new shows. I was thinking about a series. Something would be interesting. This would be life's tough, but immigrants are tougher. <laughs> Wouldn't that be, yeah, and I, I think mean, my really, parents would be great uh, yeah, interviewees. We, we, but we, we might have uh, we might have something going. Yeah, well, I think, and also with my father, I think it's you know for him, he um, also was so humble his entire life, and he knew he wanted to pay it forward. So he taught in the Baltimore City Public Schools until he was eighty. He had a oldest public school teacher in wow, the state of Maryland. Years old. As and old the, as LIRS. Well, how about <laughs> exactly. that? We, one plus one. <laughs> the deal I struck Good with job, him Dustin. was if you retire <laughs> from that full time job, I'll give you another one, which is helping with my daughter. Oh well he's he's quite remarkable and one day I hope to have him on the show. Uh, so that wraps up uh, our time here with Krish. Uh, life's tough, but Krish's parents are tougher. And thanks to you, our amazing audience, for making the Life's Tough podcast one of the most relevant and fastest growing shows around. And a special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life's Tough chief writer at my Sherpa. I'd also like to thank our producer, John Miller, from Alston Carlisle Studios. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. And each time I hear someone's personal account, like Chris. I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. To the people who lived through it, like Krish's parents, their story can seem just as powerful and energizing and as scary as any other. I ask you to use your story, like the one you heard today, to give others hope. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance when that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to transcend a situation. Please subscribe to our show, visit lifestuff.com, and be sure to join us every week, same time, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. We'd also like to close out with a new sponsor. You already know life is tough, and running your own business is tougher. You need a financial planner who's tougher. Carl Grund is a financial planner who helps small business owners navigate the market and grow their business through financial strategies. Give Carl a call at 703-287-7128. 
That's 703-287-7128. Or send an email to cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. That's cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. To learn how Carl can help you get tough on business. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC. Thanks for listening and have a great week. So from the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Plantholt and Chris Shomara Vignaraja signing off. Remember, life's tough, but immigrants are tougher. Thanks for joining us.